The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I ask you to turn together to Luke chapter 24. We've read the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 24 in our public reading, and we'd like to make our way through most of the rest of the chapter, looking at the uh, interaction with Jesus for the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and particularly focusing on what I believe to be the greatest sermon ever preached. The greatest sermon ever preached. But you want to know the sad thing? First of all, it's not recorded for us. And second of all, the two people that heard it didn't get it, (laughs) other than in their heart. But this is the greatest sermon, I believe, that has ever been preached on the face of the earth. And again, it's just unfortunate (laughs) that the two people that heard it, their eyes were holding because of unbelief. So uh, we find in the beginning portions of this chapter that the ladies uh, go and they find the tomb uh, to be empty and they run back with excitement to tell all the rest of the apostles and the people and particularly notice in verse 9 of Luke 24, they returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest, all the rest. Unfortunately, in verse 11, it says their words seemed to them to be as idle tales and they believed them not. Now, apparently, at least two of this group who we're going to find to be Cleopas and I believe most likely there's a good probability that the other companion was his wife. But at a minimum, those two people were in the room. That's important. Those two people are not just random uh, citizens of Jerusalem who are talking about the buzz in the community. These are two people who knew Jesus personally, that were disciples of Christ, and were in the room with the apostles when the women came and said that Jesus was resurrected and all, and unfortunately they were of the people in the room that took this report as idle tales and it's very important they believed them not there's a reason why their eyes were restricted from seeing Jesus as he was as he was walking with them on the road to a there's a reason why their eyes were dimmed and they weren't able to recognize him and you want to know what that problem was It was unbelief. It was unbelief. So we find here in Luke chapter 24 and in verse 13, Behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. Now, a furlong is about an eighth of a mile. So 60 furlongs equals about seven and a half miles. Okay, seven and a half miles. In verse 14, they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they they should not know him. 
And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another, as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast, uh, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? So first of all, we find that one of these people that are traveling back to Emmaus is Cleopas. <clears throat> and I'd ask you to turn to Luke, uh, not Luke, John chapter 19. And you can kind of read this for yourself here at the foot of the cross as Jesus is being crucified in Luke chapter 19 and verse 25. It says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now those two names from Luke to John are spelled minorly different. John has an H in there. But it's very possible that this could be the same people. Now you also look at the language right there. <clears throat> Jesus' mother, we know her name was Mary, and his mother's sister Mary. Well, uh, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have two kids and name both of them Mary. Um, but I think when you read the Bible many times, uh, when we say someone marries and they are a sister-in-law or brother-in-law, those type things, the Bible doesn't use that kind of language. And it really treats marriage as one flesh, okay? It doesn't distinguish between, you know, married or unmarried and, you know, as we do, uh, third cousin twice removed and all this stuff, right? Um, it makes no, none of those distinctions. It really treats them as one flesh, okay? So therefore, uh, this could very easily be describing, even though it says his mother's sister, Cleopas could be the brother of either Mary or Joseph. And then Mary is what we would term to be the sister-in-law, but according to the Bible, that's her sister, okay? Because they're one flesh, that's her sister. So, it's very possible, it's very possible that this could be Jesus's natural aunt and uncle, okay? Now, this may be two entirely different people, okay? But it's very possible that that is, uh, that these two people on the road to Emmaus is Jesus's aunt and uncle. But at a minimum, they were a disciple of Christ and they were there in the inner circle, if you will, right? They were there with the apostles. They were there with all the faithful people. And they, unfortunately, it appears to me, they, they most likely just lived in Emmaus. They were in town because of all the things that were happening. And they were just kind of going back home. Okay? There's quite a few things here in this account. Not just in this account, but in all the rest of the other four gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion and the aftermath of that and his resurrection. Um, so many people get <laughs> a bad rap sometimes uh, for unbelief and things like that. Thomas, right? Uh, he said that unless I see, uh, unless I see the prints in his hands and the prints in his feet, then I won't believe. And again, doubting Thomas gets a really bad rap. But for all practical purposes, as I've reread this this week, for all practical purposes, every single person 
outside of Mary Magdalene and the women who believe the account of the angel, and John, I want to highlight that in just a minute, but outside of that, pretty much everyone would not believe the account that he was resurrected until they saw him, okay? Just about everyone. And they were there in the room, and it's like they... It's like their spiritual minds just can't connect because they're going to say here a little bit later, he told us that he was going to be resurrected the third day and we know it's the third day. We, we know that he should have been resurrected today. Well, guess what? Somebody told you that he was. <laughs> Somebody told you that he was. So those spiritual dots should have connected. <laughs> He's been telling us you're going to be resurrected. Then people that, that we trust that are not just going to make things up, they're verifiable. And then they say he is resurrected. And, and essentially, these people are just like Thomas and say, man, unless I see him, I just can't believe it. I can't believe that he, <laughs> he's been telling us this whole time it's going to happen. We told it. And then somebody gives us a verifiable report that it has happened. And then they still say, well, I guess I just got to see it to believe it. No. <laughs> faith is believing the word of God and walking by faith and not by sight. Right? Okay? So Jesus comes and as they are just returning back home, I talked about Thomas and he gets a little bit of a bad rap. Uh, certainly Peter does as well in quite a few different things. Uh, but one of those being John chapter 21 where he says, all right, well, I go efficient, right? I'm just going to go back to uh, what I was doing before. Now, again, I don't necessarily know if Cleopas uh, lived in Emmaus, so you take that uh, for what it is, which is my conjecture. But it seems to me that they were back in Jerusalem with all the buzz and everything that was going on, maybe even his nephew being crucified and everything that was going on. And then they were waiting, anticipating uh, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus. They're there with all the apostles. Then they find out that he's, that he's there. <laughs> they find out that he is resurrected, and then they don't believe it. They believe it's idle tales. They don't believe it. And then what do they kind of say to themselves? Well, honey, I guess we can just go home now. Uh, you know, it seems to me if I found out that Jesus was resurrected and he's in Jerusalem, I think I want to hang out in Jerusalem a little bit longer, right? I don't want to just go back home. I just don't want to go back home to Emmaus. I want to go and stay where I know that Jesus is. But it's almost like, and again, I don't want to be too hard on him because I'm conjecturing here, but it's almost like Cleopas told his wife, well, you want to just go back home? You want to just go back to Emmaus? Go back to the village that we're from. And the reason why they're heading back home is because of unbelief. Because they did not believe the account that he was resurrected from the dead. So now they're heading back home, possibly. And they talk together of all the things which had come to pass. And then, while they commune together, Jesus just kind of shows up. He just shows up and he's walking there with them. But their eyes were holding. Their eyes were restricted because of unbelief, that they should not know him. And a few points related to that. I'd like to go to Matthew chapter 11. Certainly this is the case in the new birth that someone can't know the Lord unless they've been given heart to know him. That's part of the uh, package of the new birth, if you will, and 
Hebrews chapter 8, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. They'll know him in their soul, that Abba Father knowledge. But it's almost as if some of this language, though, it's, I mean, it applies um, in, in the sense of God restricting uh, some degree of knowledge to the non-elect and such. But I don't believe that God really has to hide people from, hide much from people that are dead, Okay. So a lot of times when it talks about things being hidden and restricted, that God does not waste his time hiding things from dead people, I don't think, okay? But he says here in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25, and again, if you look at the whole context of this leading up to the verses, um, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, you know, this, this isn't an invitation for people to go to heaven. This is an invitation for children of God, right, that are already born again. So I thank thee, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Now, why did God do that? I mean, that seems unfair, right? People always want to hurl accusations at God. It's not fair that you would choose someone and leave uh, Esau in his wretched condition. You know, it's not fair that you would choose someone and leave someone else with it. It's not fair that you would reveal in a special way uh, to some people, but you would leave other people in a state of ignorance. Well, why does God have the right to do that? That's right, Brother Joel, because he's God. <laughs> because he's the I am. Because he is God. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. That's one of the privileges of being sovereign, is you get to do what you want. <laughs> and he doesn't just do what he want, wants uh, in, a net, in a bad way. No, he's a good and a perfect God. So he always does things that are good and perfect. Verse 27, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now that certainly applies in the new birth, doesn't it? It applies in the new birth that no one is going to know God unless the Son of God reveals the Father to him. But that also applies in discipleship too. Because, I'll tell you, God is so gracious to us. Because look how he treated the Jews. You want to know why the Jews, many of the Jews, were put under judicial blindness? Born again children of God. In the days of Jesus, were put under judicial blindness where they, Jesus was, just like the people on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was standing in front of them doing mighty miracles but they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. Why? Because God put a judicial blindness over them. Why? Because he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Right? He put a blindness on them because of unbelief. And God's people, we, we live in a perpetual state of unbelief, don't we? Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Oh, but Lord, please help my unbelief. Because we have a little bit of unbelief residing in us every single day. And isn't God so gracious to not totally drop the curtain and the veil at a moment's notice to where we can't see anything? Isn't God just so gracious and merciful, even in spite of our unbelief, to allow us to still see glimpses of Jesus through the lattice work and still see him even despite our unbelief? Now, there came a time where Jesus eventually lifted up the curtain 
to these people on the road to Emmaus, right? He, did, he didn't uh, leave them in darkness all the time. But the reason why they were not able to see Jesus as he is there in that moment is because of unbelief. If you read um, John chapter 20, you see that Mary Magdalene is the first person to come to the empty tomb. And she doesn't immediately just say, wow, Jesus is resurrected. She goes and she runs to the apostles and said, they've taken his body. Somebody stole him. He's gone. And then, so she's displaying a little bit later on uh, when God opens her eyes, she allows us in. Okay, but her initial reaction, though, is not that Jesus resurrected. Her initial reaction is somebody took him. His body's gone. So then, I'm pretty sure this is in John chapter 20, then Jesus appears to Mary too, but she supposes that he was the gardener, okay? So this is another interaction where she sees the resurrected Jesus, but she doesn't see him. Why? Because she's still in a little bit of not just abject rejection unbelief, but she's just a little confused, right? And then... Now, let's just turn over there and read that, actually. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Verse 14. And when she had said thus, she turned herself and saw Jesus standing, but she knew not that it was Jesus, Right? Her vision of Jesus was restricted a little bit because she was not believing as fully as she ought to. And then Jesus says, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she's supposing him to be the gardener. See, she doesn't recognize him either. Sir, if thou have borne him hence, just tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. <laughs> Somebody stole him, and if you're involved in it, tell me where you took him. <laughs> So I can go find him. And then he says, don't you love how God calls his people by name? He just says to her, Mary, Mary. And then she knows him. She says, Rabbani, uh, which is to say master. And then he says, touch me not for I'm not yet ascended. And then that is when she goes and she tells everybody, right? But you see there with Mary Magdalene as well, she did not initially, she did not initially recognize Jesus when he was appearing to her. Um, a little bit further up there in, in uh, John chapter 20, again, I really enjoyed this account. She, she sees it, and then she goes and she runs and tells Peter and, and uh, the apostle John, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's referenced there in verse 2. Then they run, and you got to love <laughs> uh, the apostle John being the one that's inspired to write this, and he just conveniently adds... Uh, that he outruns Peter to the tomb. Uh, you got to love the gamesmanship between all these apostles. And uh, I give, maybe the Holy Spirit suffered John a little bit <laughs> to say, you know what, why don't you just go ahead and tell them that you, you got there first too, right? But when they saw the tomb, though, again, Mary, Mary Magdalene did not fully believe until she saw Jesus, okay? She did not fully believe till she saw Jesus. Thomas did not fully believe till he saw Jesus. But the Apostle John, though, it says in verse 8, 
they went in and that other disciple, speaking of the apostle whom Jesus loved, which is the apostle John, came first to the sepulchre. And when he saw, he believed. He believed. And I can think, as I was reading back through this this week, I think he's about the only one in that verse right there that truly believed that Jesus was resurrected before he saw it. Now, again, we give Thomas a really hard time, but every single one of these people were the exact same way. And isn't that pitiful that they were supposedly looking for him to be resurrected the third day, and for some reason they didn't believe the report when, uh, when they found out that he was. And he goes on to say there later as he shows Thomas, Thomas didn't believe, and then he appears to him again, and then he goes on later to say, you would not believe um, without seeing this. And he said, blessed are they, Thomas, because thou hast seen me and thou hast believed, blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. And that's us, isn't it? We're, we, that's the, our only option. <laughs> we can't see the physical Jesus, but you can make a strong case that possibly the apostle John is the only one that truly believed that Jesus was resurrected prior to seeing Jesus. And there's a lot to be commended about the Apostle John too. Because again, Peter said, Peter said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And we know he denied him three times. But guess what? Every single one of the apostles said the exact same thing. And what did they all do after Jesus was erected, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? They all fled. But you'll know the only person that came back? The Apostle John. He was there with Mary and the women at the foot of the cross, wasn't he? He was the only apostle that was there. Now, Peter, he was hanging out on the fringes, and he ended up denying the Lord three times while he was hanging out there on the fringes. But the only apostle that was there at the foot of the cross was the apostle John. And the only uh, apostle that believed without seeing Jesus was the apostle John, okay? <clears throat> So now Cleopas and his companion are returning to Emmaus and their eyes are restricted from seeing Jesus because of their unbelief. And it's really, they, they, there's no way they would have talked to Jesus this way if they knew who they were talking to because they're really being kind of salty and sarcastic. Are thou a stranger in Jerusalem and you don't know? And no doubt it was the buzz of the whole town. It would have been a very unique thing for someone to have been in Jerusalem the last few days and you don't know what's going on with Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, I mean, everyone was talking about this, right? And then they say, how in the world do you not know about this? If you haven't heard about Jesus of Nazareth and then Jesus just kind of plays along, well, what things? What are you talking about? You know, what things have been going on? And then they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, and I want you to notice how sad this is. These were people that were anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. They heard a report that he was resurrected, and they're talking about Jesus in a defeated past tense. Isn't it sad how God's people can get discouraged and depressed so quickly. You know, think about Elijah. <clears throat> and he's calling down fire from heaven and destroying those 850 false prophets. 
And all it takes is one wicked woman threatening him. And within a day, he's saying, Lord, my life's not worth anything. Take my life. You know, Lord, just kill me right now. And they, these people, you want to talk about throwing in the towel. It's one thing to throw in the towel if you hadn't heard the report that he was resurrected. <laughs> but these people have already thrown in the towel concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet. He was a prophet. Mighty in, in words and in deeds, but now the chief prophets and our rulers, they delivered him to be condemned to death and they've crucified him. And we trusted that it had been him which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day which those things were done. And, so, and yea, certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were at the sepulcher. And they found him not. They found not his body and they came and said they had seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher, but they, found, they didn't find his body though. So we got a report that he's resurrected, which, you know, again, they just don't get it. They're looking for a body, but he's been resurrected. <laughs> There's no body going to be laying in the tomb. Why? Because he's alive, right? But isn't this so sad? We had trusted that he would have been the one that was going to redeem Israel. And they've just thrown in the towel. They've thrown in the towel and said, Man, we put all of our hopes in him. Today's the third day. Today's the day we should have seen him. And I guess Jesus failed. Mm -hmm. I guess he failed. We put our hopes in him. We hoped he was going to redeem Israel, but we haven't seen him with our own two eyes. So I guess he failed in redeeming Israel. And as a side note, isn't it so discouraging? And it was, and it was very evident, by the way, from Jesus' uh, he says in verse 17, why is it that you walk and are sad? Their whole disposition, everything about them was just depressed and sad. It was written all over their face. It was written all over their countenance. Which, by the way, obviously, if that's how they felt in their, uh, in their mind, they should be sad. <laughs> but the truth is standing right in front of you and you're sad in the presence of the, of the resurrected Son of God just because you don't believe the report of the gospel. And isn't it sad how many children of God walk around sad here in this world when they say, I'll tell you, Jesus wanted to redeem all the world. Jesus wanted to redeem all of Israel. And we trusted and we hoped that he was going to get more people to heaven but unfortunately, unfortunately, we hoped he was going to redeem all of Israel. But unfortunately, I guess he's just going to have to settle for those people that are willing to repent, willing to believe, willing to act right. And many people have a very diminished view. You know, what did it, what's the language that's used in the, uh, in the Mount of Transfiguration? They had Moses and they had Elijah. And they, what did they speak of? They speak of his decease that he should accomplish at Jerusalem. <laughs> Jesus' decease in Jerusalem was an accomplishment, right? He accomplished everything that he came in the world to do, which was to save his people from their sins. But unfortunately, so many children of God are walking around, even if they don't really understand it, in a, in a sad countenance in their soul, 
because they think Jesus wants to save everybody, but he just couldn't get the job done, okay? Unfortunately, that's the same state of unbelief that Cleopas and his companion are in as well. So they'd heard the report. They heard the report. They didn't believe it. And they have thrown in the towel and they're just heading back home. And then Jesus rebukes them in verse 25. O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? You know, that was something that the Jews never got. They, boy, they were all about these prophecies of the seed of David setting up a kingdom that will stand forever and, and all of these, these manifest uh, prophecies of the kingdom of God. But they could not reconcile that with Isaiah 53, that he's going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and all of that. And the, the abject suffering that is displayed in the prophecy in Isaiah 53, the, the Jews couldn't reconcile it. They couldn't get it, Okay. But I want you to notice how Jesus here connects the necessity of suffering to enter into glory. Now, these Jews, they were all about the prophecies of the kingdom, but they were not looking for the prophecies of the necessity of Christ suffering to enter into his glory. And then what did Jesus do? He preaches the greatest sermon in the history of the world. And you know what? They didn't get it in their head. They didn't get it in their head. But it says in verse 32, after he ends up vanishing and leaving, they say in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And I believe that's a very important distinction because there's a lot of children of God, I believe, that the gospel of salvation by grace alone, it resonates with their heart. Their head may never get it. <laughs> Why? Because there's some things, some spiritual cataracts that are obstructing their view. There are some problems. There's some family ties. There are some, some verses that they haven't had reconciled properly in a rightly dividing of Scripture. There are, there are obstacles in their, in their vision that is preventing them from believing it all the way in their head, but boy, it resonates in their heart. And the gospel of salvation by grace alone is always going to burn the heart of the child of God. Why? Because that's the law and the truth that God has written in the heart of every single child of God. I haven't had these experiences myself very much. I haven't preached too many funerals. But I know many primitive Baptists, if they get up at a funeral and they just preach salvation by grace alone, not, not any action that we could add to the work of Jesus Christ, it is finished and he saved his people and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And there are always people that come up to them afterwards and say, you know what, where do you preach at? I, I've never heard that before. I want to come. Why? Because there is something that touched their soul. There's something that touched their heart. But then what happens? Their head gets in the way. <laughs> their head gets in the way. And their, their eyes can't see Christ properly because there's something in their vision that is obstructing that. But boy, it always resonates with the heart. Because I'll tell you, the soul always gets happy when it, when it describes the finished work of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace alone. That always touches 
the heart. So I will say that this greatest sermon that was ever preached in the history of the world, these people didn't get it in their head, but their souls were happy. <laughs> you hear me? Their souls were getting happy. But bless their heart, they didn't get a lick of it <laughs> at this time in their head. And you know why they didn't? Because of unbelief. Mm -hmm. Because of unbelief. But man, boy, if we could have had this sermon recorded. I listen to sermons all the time uh, to, to learn and to, to have other people's perspective. And I just need to have that spiritual edification. And, and I enjoy listening to the audio. And the audio, that's not an excuse to not come to church now. It's not an excuse to forsake the assembly of the saints. Because there's something you feel in the assembly of the saints and the spirit of God that you can't replicate in audio. But I enjoy the audio. But boy, wouldn't it have been something? <laughs> wouldn't it have been something? That all these verses, and I, I think I understand a little bit about the Messianic Psalms and Psalm uh, 22 and Isaiah 53 and, and a lot of these, uh, these Messianic prophecies. And there's some beautiful truths in there. But boy, wouldn't it be something to hear the resurrected Son of God give an exposition of every single text that was speaking of his death and burial and resurrection. Boy, that would be something, wouldn't it? And you know what? The world probably couldn't contain that anyway. It said in, uh, in John 21 that uh, if, if, if everything that Jesus did was written down, the world couldn't contain it. Uh, the world probably couldn't even contain this sermon. <laughs> But boy, I, there's a lot that I don't understand. And wouldn't it be great for the resurrected Son of God to, to, un, uh, un, uh, to reveal those truths to you about this is what the full extent of Isaiah 53 means, right? Those amazing truths. But their head didn't get it. But their heart was stirred up. Their heart burned within them. Then they bring them into their home. They drew nigh to the village, and he acted like he was just going to go a little bit further, but they constrained him to say, abide with us. Come into our home. We want to feed you, which is a very good practical point. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, be not forgetful to entertain strangers because you may entertain angels unaware. Well, guess what? It may not even be angels. It may not even be angels. I mean, I don't know if the Lord will, uh, I don't tend to think he will in our day, but to, to manifest himself in this way. But you can miss out on tremendous blessings if you are unwilling to, quote, inconvenience yourself from time. Think about Genesis chapter 18. There's four, uh, three people that just show up on the plains of Mamre. Two of them end up being angels that go to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But you'll know who the third one was? Jehovah God. Jehovah God. And what did Abraham do? They didn't show up with a uh, with the heavenly spotlight walking on them. No, they were three strangers that he treated, treated just like every other stranger that walked by his tent. Hey, can you come in? I'll feed you. I'll wash your feet. So be not forgetful to entertain strangers unawares. And aren't you glad for them in hindsight that they were willing to do that because wouldn't have been when they actually realized who he was if they would have said, uh, well, you know, actually, we've had a really busy couple days. We probably don't have anything in the pantry. You know, why don't you just go on ahead? We don't want to inconvenience you. No, they brought him into their home, probably when it was inconvenient. And they had this communion with him. And it says there in verse 30, he sat with them at meat and he broke bread and blessed it. 
and gave it to them. That, that sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like communion. <clears throat> but then, as he communed with them there over supper, their eyes were opened. So their eyes were restricted. But then all of a sudden, their eyes were opened. And then, they get it, and then, whoosh, he's gone. <laughs> he vanished away. And then they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us? And you know what they do? They just got home. They just got home. They fed Jesus' supper. Their eyes were open. He vanished out of their sight. And what do they do? They get right back up and they go straight to Jerusalem where they just came from. Isn't it interesting, a, a contrast between those two journeys to and from Emmaus? <laughs> that they were, uh, they were in total despair that the Redeemer of Israel had failed even while the Redeemer was walking with them, they were walking in total sadness and dejection going to Emmaus. Then all of a sudden, they realize that, that he's resurrected. They saw him, and, and now all of a sudden, their, their attitude is entirely different going back to Jerusalem, isn't it? <laughs> Boy, they got a... Uh, I don't think that they were just strolling either. I mean, it was seven and a half miles, but I think they were, they were running. I think they had a pretty good clip. Why? Because now all of a sudden, they had some joy. <laughs> They weren't sad anymore. And unfortunately, they, just like so many of others, and just like us, just like us, they didn't believe until they saw. They didn't believe until they saw. So they went up and they immediately go back to Jerusalem. And the 11 were gathered there. And then the Lord, he's appearing to, you know, <laughs> he's just vanished out of the sight there in Emmaus. And he's just vanishing in one place and showing up in another. He's popping up all around. He, and he apparently had just manifested himself specifically, and this is special too, he manifested himself specifically to Simon. The Lord has risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon, which is Simon Peter. And isn't it great that after the Lord, he denied him three times and the Lord looked on him with that look of disappointment and dejection. And Peter went out and he wept bitter tears. Isn't it great that the Lord went out of his way to appear to Peter individually, to to confirm that. And then they told those two people, Cleopas and his companion, tell the apostles what was done by the way and how he was made known of them. But this is a point we don't have time to really uh, um, to highlight as much as I would like to. How he was made known of them in the breaking of bread. When were their eyes opened? When were their eyes opened? When they were communing with him in fellowship and partaking of uh, pretty much the Lord's Supper. Isn't that, isn't that pretty neat? That that is when their eyes were opened, was in special communion and fellowship with Jesus, breaking bread with him in their home. And then Jesus shows up again. And as they spake, Jesus stood himself in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. So now he's appearing to everybody again. And then they're terrified that this is a ghost. This is a spirit. Why are you troubled? Why do your thoughts rise in your, in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that is, uh, it is I myself. Handle me and, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And, and this is an interesting phrase here. While they yet believe not for joy. I mean, believe before they didn't believe because they thought it was idle tales. But now... They're so filled up with joy, it's like, this can't be real. <laughs> you know, they, they believe not for joy. 
They're just so overwhelmed. And then he uh, he says, have you here any meat? And then he eats a piece of a broiled fish and a honeycomb. And he took it and he ate it before them. Verse 44, these are the words which I spoke <clears throat> unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning him. He added in the Psalms right there, actually. He said, Previously, the law of Moses and the prophets. But now, Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. And then, verse 45, this is part two. <laughs> this is part two of the greatest sermon ever preached. And then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. He opened the understanding of not just the two, not just Cleopas and his companion, but he opened the scriptures to everyone that was there in that room. And again, I just can't imagine the kind of spiritual joy in your soul when not just when your heart's getting it, but when your head fully understands and when the resurrected Son of God is going line by line in all of Moses, in all of the prophets, in all of the Psalms, and the Son of God is going line by line saying this is fully how this was prophesying of me dying and being resurrected the third day to pay for your sins. Wow, right? Wow, what an amazing message this must have been. Verse 46, Thus it is written, And it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. They were called upon... That's why Jesus appeared to so many people individually. It's not just um, to reaffirm their faith. It's that now they could go out and tell people a firsthand eyewitness account of the truth of this. That's what it gets to in 1 Corinthians 15 where it says Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once. And these are all the individual people that, uh, that he appeared to, which by the way is a side note. We find there in 1 Corinthians 15, they appeared to 500 people, all of the apostles, actually above 500 people. So he, he appeared to at least 512 people uh, that had firsthand eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Jesus. And again, we, we pick on Peter. We're saying, I go a fishing. But you want to know how many people were left that were there in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 before the day of Pentecost? You know how many people were left? 120. What happened to those 380 people? I don't, think, I don't think Jesus wasted his time appearing to unregenerates. What happened to those 300 children of God that saw the resurrected Jesus and then just went on about their merry way? Isn't that pitiful? God's people were pitiful a lot of times. You want to know, I, I multiplied that out. If he appeared to 500 and 12, 520 people, and only 120 people left, that means only 23%. 23% of the people that saw him resurrected were there in that upper room as a devoted church there in Acts chapter 1. Why? Why? Because unbelief got in the way. <laughs> you, you, sure enough, you sure enough know their heart wasn't, uh, wasn't deceived when they saw the resurrected Jesus. They let some things cloud their vision. They let some things distract them 
from believing on Jesus as faithfully as they should, and 380 people just went, just went their separate way. But God allowed them to see him so they would go out and tell other people not just the idea of the gospel, but I saw a resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. And that was the ministry of the apostles. This goes on and transitions. These last few verses transition pretty much directly into the book of Acts. And Luke wrote both Luke and the book of Acts. Both of them are um, pinned to Theophilus. They were written primarily to one man. So the end of this book transitions directly into the beginning of Acts of the Apostles. But I want you to notice the distinction here. In verse 41, it says, They believed not for joy, but now they've seen the resurrected Jesus. He told them, You're going to go and be a uh, disciple for me. He goes out to Bethany, verse 30, uh, verse 50, and he lifts up his hand, and it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So before, right, they believed not for joy, but now their perspective is entirely changed. And you want to know why? You want to know why the original apostles, they were not afraid of the Sanhedrin when they said they were going to throw you in jail. They weren't afraid of, of any of that stuff. We're going to obey God rather than man. Why weren't, why weren't they afraid of any of that? Because they had seen the resurrected Son of God. <laughs> And I'll tell you, a vision of the resurrected Son of God can give us the appropriate vision to put everything else in perspective. Because I'll tell you, Peter and John, they weren't concerned when, you know, those, the uh, chief priests and the, all the members of the Sanhedrin and, and they, the same ones that killed Jesus, and they put their finger in their face and they said, don't you dare, don't you dare say anything else about the resurrected Jesus. And they just laughed in their face. <laughs> and they said, look, I'm not afraid of you at all. <laughs> Why? Because I have been emboldened by the knowledge and the vision of the resurrected Son of God. And I'll tell you, that's the kind of boldness that the church should have. That's the church that turned the world upside down. That's the church that set Jerusalem on fire, that, that closed down pagan temples in Ephesus. That's the church that turned the world upside down. And what was the vision that they had in their mind the whole time while they were doing that? A vision of the resurrected Son of God. Now, we can't see him personally. We can't see him personally, but we walk by faith, not by sight. We can see him through faith, and I, th I believe we can see the detriments when we don't trust and believe God as faithfully as we should. And I, I just as a practical note, you will miss a lot of God's movement and providence and manifestations in your life. He's there. He's there. But you will miss it if you're not believing and trusting God in the manner that you should. But boy, when, when you get some things out of, your, out of your vision and you can see God moving, you can see God moving in this world, you can see that his lines of providence lining up in so many different areas of your life. When you can see that, 
it gives you so much more boldness and encouragement for the future, but you will miss it. You will miss it if your eyes get distracted, okay? The Son of God was standing right in front of people and they could not see Him because of unbelief, okay? Lord knows we need to have His grace to get rid of our spiritual cataracts that prevent us from seeing Jesus clearly. And there's no vision, excuse me, there's no vision we need to see more clearly than the resurrected Son of God, that He has been resurrected from the dead, that He is the living Savior, and, and we have the blessed privilege of the gospel, that He has been resurrected, and that's why we don't sorrow as others that have no hope. You see, that's why those apostles were not concerned. If those chief priests kill me just like they did Jesus, that all that does is get eternity started faster. And this body is going to be resurrected at the end of time. This body's going to be resurrected. Why? Because Jesus was resurrected. That's the impact that the gospel has. That's the impact that the gospel has in God's people's lives we don't get concerned about all the things of this world when we're going out with great joy because of the knowledge of the resurrected Jesus, right? I'm so thankful that Jesus came in the world and died for our sins, but he's so gracious to us to give us this gospel, to give us this word, to encourage us so we can serve him faithfully here in our life of discipleship. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.